Amen. You may be seated. As you do so, let us join together now as God's people as we take our copy of God's Word and we turn together to our passage for this morning and a week ahead of us. And we find that in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 13 through 18. So the Gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, chapter 16, verses 13 through 18. So for several years now, we have taken the, the month of January, we've begun it with our covenant renewal service, and then we take the rest of the, of the month to do a, a sermon series that we call, What Does God Say? And we use this to look at different topics to see, what does God say about that particular subject? We've looked at things such as uh, money and alcohol, uh, sexuality, politics, and those sort of things, using it to, support, to look at a hot topic issue of that time so we don't just have the, the world defining it for us but we want to know what does God say about this particular subject and so as we come to that time of the year and month again we've been studying uh, this past year the book of Acts and the book of Acts chronicles the, the birth and growth of the early church so with that in mind I thought it would be good for us instead of looking at a necessarily sort of hot topic button sort of issue that we use this time to think through some more of the fundamentals of the church. What does God say about the church? That's a, that's a wide open question. And we can spend a, a long time in this. Um, but our plan is for this morning to look at what does God say about the church, focusing on just a couple things. Uh, next Lord's Day, we're going to look at what does God say uh, about being a member of the church and then finish up the following Sunday about what does God say about leadership in the church. And then that will lead us then back in February into our study of the book of Acts. So you'll notice in your bulletin there's an insert that has some of our confessions, uh, uh, some, some from our confessions about the nature of the church. So I encourage you to, to put that in your Bible, to, to look through it throughout the week. Uh, this is a summary of what the Bible teaches us about the church. And so to kind of give us a, more of an understanding of that. But we're going to turn together this morning to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 16 to look at a few particulars of what God tells us. What does God say about the church? But before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and pray for his blessing in our time together. Lord, our prayer is simple this morning. For we, are, we are simple men and women gathered as your people. So our simple prayer is this. You open our hearts you would open our minds so we may both hear and believe. We may receive and rest upon Christ as he has offered to us in this part of your holy word. And we ask this now in the name of the one who is the Logos, who is the word, who all the word points towards, and that is Jesus Christ. Amen. So Matthew 16, verses 13 through 18. And we will stand together now for the reading of God's word. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father, who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, 
and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. So how would you define the church? Let's think about within a situation. Let's say you have been bold enough and brave enough to volunteer to teach a children's Sunday school class. And if you're feeling kind of froggy that way, please see Cal afterwards. He'd love to take some more volunteers to teach. Let's say you've been brave enough to teach a child Sunday school class. Or here in the next little while, as we begin to prepare for vacation Bible school, you, you volunteer to help with vacation Bible school. Or maybe it's just a situation that you're talking to a family member or someone, you're talking to someone who isn't a Christian. But if you're in that Sunday school class with a six-year-old, if you're in a vacation Bible school room with uh, a bunch of rowdy eight and nine-year-olds, rowdy but lovable, because we do need volunteers for vacation Bible school, don't get scared away about that. Or if you're sitting across the table from maybe a hostile non-Christian. But in your situations, you're asked, what is the church? How would you answer that question? How would you answer that young child, maybe a teenager, maybe a hostile family member? How would you answer the question of what is the church? Well, maybe our answer would sound something like, well, that's where we go on Sundays. That's where we, that's where we go to worship. It's, it's, it's the place for God's people to, to gather on Sundays. Whenever I'm talking to somebody, it comes up and I'm a pastor, and the pastor of Bethel ARP, and they ask me, well, where's your church? My answer is always the same. Do you know where the town clock is? Nine times out of ten, they know. I said, well, we're the, we're the brick building right behind the town clock. That is Bethel ARP. So how would you define the church? Well, let me confess to you, that's somewhat of a trick question. Because that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how you would define the church. What matters is how does God define the church? Our, our opinion on this doesn't matter. What matters to us as God's people is how does God, how does God define the church? What does he tell us about the church? What does he want us to know about the church? What does God have to say about the church? And what's interesting to notice is pretty quickly when we, when we look at that, when we start going through God's word and how he talks about the church, we find very quickly he doesn't primarily talk about a place or a building. God in talking about his church doesn't say necessarily, do you know where the town clock is? It's right behind there. When God talks about the church, he talks about a people. Specifically, his people, the people of God. So from the very get-go, we see that how we may want or may be tempted to define the church as a place or as a, as a building is not how God would define it. To God, the church is more than a building. To him, Bethel ARP is, is more than it's more than four walls. I can't count them all. We have more than four walls in here. And it's more than the stained glass windows. And it's more than the pews. And it's more than the organ. To God, our God, his people are the church. So when God is sitting on his throne in heaven, and he thinks about Bethel ARP, he doesn't think of 101 North Zion Street, Winsboro, South Carolina, 29180. The church that sits on the corner of Washington Zion Street he thinks of you. 
He thinks of me. He thinks of us as his people. To God, his people are the church. And we see that in the Greek word for church, which is the word ecclesia. When we look at that word, we break it down. The word means the called out ones. The Greek word for church means the called out ones. So, so God and the, his divine inspiration and guidance has, has led his people to use this word of the church that means the called out ones. So to God, the church is those who have been caught out from the world by him, called out to salvation in him, called out to love and follow Jesus as their Lord and Savior. The church is the called out ones. The church are those called out by God from the world to be his people. That is who we are. That is the ecclesia. That is who Bethel ARP is. We said before, we'll say it again. If something were to happen to his church this week, and Lord willing, it will not. But the sanctuary was destroyed this week. You know what would still be here next Sunday? Bethel ARP Church. If we had to meet out in the middle of the field, or if we had to meet in another building, or in, the, in, the, in somebody's backyard, Bethel ARP will still be here because it's the people. So when we understand this, when we make this our foundational understanding of the church, then we can see that the roots of the church go back much further than the book of Acts. Goes back much further than the Gospels. It goes all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. It goes back to Adam and Eve in the garden. Because who were Adam and Eve? They were those who were created by God for what purpose? To be his people. And in being his people, they enjoyed fellowship with God and the immediate presence of him. And that certainly included worship. Because as his perfect creation, before they had fallen into sin, they found God worthy above all else. So in that fellowship, we see in Genesis 1 and 2, it included worship. So which means one of the first, in a sense, institutions that God created was the church. Creating Adam and Eve, putting them in marriage, but in that, creating the institution of the church. We're not told about a building. We're not told, we're not told about a liturgy. We're not told about Adam building pews. We're talking about people, God's people. And the fellowship and worship of God. It was the first ARP church of Eden. We all know the first church of Eden had to have been ARP. So wherever we find people who trust God for their salvation. In the Old Testament, that was looking forward to the promise of Christ. And in the New Testament, for us, it's looking back to that promise of Christ. We then find a church. They are the called out ones. That's who we are. And it helps us understand the what of the church, and that is the mission of the church. What is the church supposed to be doing? Now that is a wide open question. And that you can find a variety of answers to out in the world. But what we understand scripture to teach us is the mission of the church is sort of gathering and perfecting the saints and this life to the end of the world. Why do we do what we do? Is to gather the saints, be perfected by the Lord to the end of the world. That's the mission of Bethel ARP. Why are we here? 
to do that mission. Now, I made that point because a lot of people will say, well, well the mission of church is evangelism. That is a part of the mission, but that is not the mission. The mission is the gathering and perfecting of the saints. And in that mission, then we are called out to do the Great Commission. Because Jesus gave that Great Commission to his disciples who were to give it to the church. That as people are brought into the church, as people are brought in and gathered and perfected, then they are called to go out and make disciples of all nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded us so they can be a part of the church. Now, I don't want y'all to think that it's, uh, we're playing semantics there because that's an important distinction to make. And I say this by my own personal experience. I came to faith in a church that had it, that had it where the evangelism was the mission of the church. And so in youth group one night, I could not tell you what the passage was. But I remember coming home, being convicted, 15 years old, uh, September of my sophomore year in high school. Laying in my bed and, and, and praying for salvation. That church had succeeded in evangelism, but you know what happened from that point forward? I did not know what to do. They were great about getting you to Jesus. But anything past that point, they didn't have anything for you. And it's a, it's a thin ice to put a confused 15-year-old on and say, here's your deed for Jesus, but once we get you there, we don't know what to do with you. So understanding the mission matters. We understand that we are called to gather and perfect that leads us to evangelism. That matters. There's more we can say about that, but I put that all there to help us then go to what I want us to focus our attention on this morning, and that is the goal of the church. We know, we know the mission, but what, what's the goal of the mission? What's the, what's the goal of the mission to gather and perfect the saints? Well, we, we find Jesus giving an answer to us here in our passage this morning. We're, we're placed at Caesarea Philippi. Jesus' disciples have come to the small town that's at the foot of Mount Hermon. And so by the time they are gathered at this, at this village town, so to speak, the disciples have, have heard Jesus preach a number of sermons. They've heard him preach the Sermon on, on the Mount. They've heard other sermons. They've heard him teach through numerous parables. They've seen him calm a storm. They've seen him walk on water. They've seen him exercise demons. They've seen him raise a girl from the dead. They've seen him heal the blind and mute. They've even seen him feed thousands from a small amount of fish and bread. They've seen, they've experienced, and they've learned a lot. Now Jesus gathers them, and he asks them this question, who do you say that I am? It is first posed about who the people say Jesus is, and then they answer, but then Jesus turns around on them. Okay, that's what they say, but who do you say that I am? There's a little bit of southern ease going on in here. Jesus was here with us this morning. He said, but who do y'all say that I am? Peter, who, who do y'all say that I am? Peter, taking on his role as, as the acting spokesman for the group, seems to answer pretty quickly, but answers correctly, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. But that's more than an answer. That, that, that's a confession of faith. Peter, speaking for the group, declares what they believe. 
They believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's the Greek word for Messiah. They believe he is the long-promised Messiah. The one they've been talked about from all their Old Testament stories. When they were in Sunday school and they went to vacation Bible school. And when they were in worship and they heard all these wonderful uh, Old Testament stories about the Messiah. They are confessing, Jesus, you are the Messiah. You're the one who's been promised. You're the one we've been looking for. You are this Messiah. You're the one that your people have been looking for since Genesis 3.15 when God promised to send forth the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpents. But it's not just a confession of Jesus' Messiahship. It's also a confession of his divinity. Because what does Peter say? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Not only you're the Messiah... You're the second person of the triune Godhead. You are Emmanuel. You are God in the flesh. Peter is confessing for the group, their faith, that Jesus is exactly who God has promised to the prophets. And Jesus is exactly who he has told them he is. He is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. Now, when we think about the disciples, we want to think about them fairly. And to put it fairly, they're not the brightest bulbs in the bunch. They're dumb. They can be dumb. They can say and do one dumb things. So we find that this is a monumental and wonderful confession of faith. And it's so monumental and wonderful that there's no way Peter could have made it up. He's too dumb. There's no way the 12 disciples got together and brainstormed this. They're just not bright enough. They have human, finite, sinful minds that could not come up with this. This sort of confession can only come from God alone. And that's what Jesus says in verse 17. Peter makes the confession and Jesus replies, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So it's like a, a, a heavenly light bulb has turned upon, turned on above all their heads. They didn't turn it on. God turned it on. Flesh and blood could not reveal some only God in heaven. Something that's wonderful can only come from God. We're, the 12 disciples were not smart enough to come with, up with this. The world around them could not come up with it. This sort of confession of faith can only come from one place, can only come from one person, and it comes from God. And the same is true for us. Our recognition of who Jesus is must come from God because it can only come from God. Let's be honest. We're a lot like the disciples, aren't we? We're not the brightest bulb in the bunch. My family would be happy to tell you how I'm the least brightest bulb in that whole bunch. And your family may want to say the same about you. We're not the smartest. We're not the wittiest. We're, we're, the, we're not the most intellectual. There's no way our confession of faith could be conjured up with these sinful, finite minds and hearts far. It has to come from God alone. Your confession of who Jesus is, your confession of what he's done for you, for his people, can only come from God making that known to you. That God so loved you that he took that heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh. 
And that spiritual heart of flesh enables you from God to know who He is in mind and heart. If you confess and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, that's not from you. That's not because you're so smart. That's not because you're so studious and diligent in your studies. It's because God had mercy on you. And God in His love saved you. And in that love, He made known to you who He is. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. It came from God alone. It's from this confession of faith that Jesus then teaches a, a fundamental truth about the church. We see in verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. From Peter's confession of faith, Jesus makes this promise of the posture of his church. Now, now this is, a, this is um, uh, controversial in some ways because this promise has been misinterpreted over the years. It's centered around what it means about Peter and the rock upon which Jesus will build his church. Part of confusion is that the name Peter, it sounds a lot like the Greek word for rock, which is Petra. So Peter, Petra, sounds a lot the same, similar in the Greek. And so some interpret that what Jesus is saying here is that God's church will be built upon Peter, that Peter is the rock in this. And that's what the Catholic Church believes. So because of this, they, they, they believe that Peter was the first pope. This was in a sense of Jesus installing Peter as the first pope. And all other popes go back to Peter. And it was to, to them, from the first pope onward, that the church was built. But the problem is, the Bible doesn't hold that up. We see uh, that, uh, well, that Jesus' statement here does not mean that Peter would have greater authority than the other apostles. We go to Galatians 2, and we see that Paul calls him out uh, rather boldly in public. Nor does it mean that he would be infallible as teaching. Jesus has to rebuke him. Remember, Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. And then he has to go on further and ask Peter three times to get a point across, do you love me? Then feed my flock. Nowhere does it seem to imply that there's a special office for Peter or successors to, to the office. And in the first half of Acts, as we've been studying, Peter appears as a spokesman and leader of the, of the Jerusalem church, but he's still sent by the other apostles to Samaria in Acts 8. And he has to come give an account of his actions to the Jerusalem church. Peter's presented as having only one voice at Jerusalem Council, and it's actually James, the half-brother of Jesus, who has the decisive final word. So nowhere in Scripture does it hold up Peter as the Pope. Nowhere does it hold it up that Peter is the rock upon which the church is built. So then, how do we interpret this? We interpret it by what Jesus is referring to. And that's the confession about Jesus that, that Peter has made. The rock is the confession that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of the living God. And upon that rock, the, G, the church of Jesus Christ will be built. It is the rock of who Jesus is, the Son of the living God, the second person of the triumph Godhead. It's the rock of what he has done as a Messiah, as our Savior, the one who has come to deliver his people. The, the rock here is the confession that points to Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the rock of the church and his people. Don't you see and remember Jesus says something about not building your house on sand? 
but building it on what? Rock. He is the rock on which the church is built. That's the posture of the church. That's the, that, that, that's, that's, that's the stance of the church founded upon the confession of who Jesus is and what he has done for his people, that confession that always points to Jesus. That's why what we confess we believe in is so important. We confess our faith every Sunday with the Lord's, or with the, not the Lord's Prayer, we do pray the Lord's Prayer, but we confess with the Apostles' Creed. We confess what the Bible teaches through our confession of faith. It's important. Theology isn't some sort of dry, boring study left for theology nerds and pastors and seminary students. And what we believe in is of the utmost importance. Our confession of what we believe in is of the utmost importance. Because what we believe in should always point us to the rock that the church is built on. When we get the confession wrong, then we get the church wrong. A story was shared with me a few years ago in a Bible study that sometime before me, I want to clarify this was before me, not me. Uh, the, 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 the church was looking for a pastor. And the candidate, one of the candidates they met with said pretty quickly in the interview that he didn't believe in heaven. He didn't believe in hell. He didn't believe in Satan. He didn't believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And thankfully, the committee at times said, the door's that way, man. But think about if that man had ended up pastoring this church. Where would his confession lead the church? It would have led them away from the rock of Jesus Christ's witness. It would lead them away from Jesus. That's why our confession is important. Why we confess what we believe is important. Because Jesus says to Peter, this is the rock upon which I will build my church. If our confession does not point to Jesus, then it's a faulty confession. If our confession does not point to Jesus, then it will adversely affect the church. Because this is in part the mission of the church, what he tells Peter. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. To me, this is a very um, comforting visual of Christ's promise about the church. I want us to think about this militarily. What are gates used for? When we think of, when we think of a castle or a fort, what are the gates there for? Keep people in or keep people out? To keep people out, isn't it? They're there for defensive tools. When we watch movies or read accounts of, of forts and, and, and castles, when the enemy's coming, what's the first thing they do? Draw the gates. Keep the enemy out. And Jesus here talking about his church, what, what does he say has gates? Does the church have gates? No. What has gates? Hell itself. And why would, why would there be gates of hell? It's to defend against Christ and his church. Put it this way. Satan is so terrified of Jesus and his church that he has to build gates against him and us. Now think about that. That, G, I'm sorry, that Satan has built gates around his kingdom to keep us out. Little Bethel ARP in little Winsboro, South Carolina, Satan is so terrified of us because of our confession of faith in Jesus that he has built gates around his kingdom. We can often ascribe too much power to Satan 
And don't get me wrong, Satan is powerful. He's more powerful than you and me. He's smarter than you and me. He's more hardworking than you and me. However, he isn't more than Christ. He isn't more than the one who has already defeated him. And Satan and hell decide that knows that they need gates against Jesus' church. That there are gates of hell to defend against the onslaught of, onslaught of Christ and his church. And that is meant to be good news. Because we live in a world we often feel like we're on the losing end, right? But spiritually speaking, spiritually speaking, Satan has closed the gates of hell because Bethel ARP believes in Jesus, preaches Jesus, teaches Jesus, prays to Jesus, follows Jesus. Just think, by doing what we do every Sunday, by believing what we believe, we have been storming the gates of hell. And the gates of hell will not prevail. When we obligate ourselves to things that we just think are just what the church does, faithful preaching and teaching the word, faithful administration of sacraments, the fellowship of saints, when we do those things, we are literally storming the gates of hell and the gates of hell shall not prevail. A faithful church is an army that is an attack against Satan and his army because the faithful church is proclaiming the gospel as a light in a dark world. And think about what that means. Whenever someone's convicted their sins because of the preaching and teaching God's word and they place their faith in Christ, then the gates of hell have been assaulted. When someone has been convicted of sin and repents of them and comes to renewed faith and obedience to Christ, the gates of hell have been assaulted. When the Bible is faithfully read, the gates of hell have been assaulted. When the Bible is faithfully preached, the gates of hell have been assaulted. When the Bible is faithfully lived out upon, the gates of hell have been assaulted. When we are just doing what we've been called to do as a church, the gates of hell have been assaulted. And they will never prevail against it. It's like all those wonderful war movies that where you see the, the massive army storming the castle, storming the fort, and you know they are going to overcome. That's the promise of God here to his church. There will be assaults by Satan and his demons. They will storm out of the gates to try and attack to destroy to the church. But here's the thing. They have already lost. Jesus has won. He has proclaimed on the cross that it is finished. We are on the victory march. They may come out and they may harass and it will hurt and there will be trials and tribulations. But the gates of hell shall not prevail. As long as the word is preached and taught and read, as long as it is prayed, as long as it is shared, as long as it is a part of the life of the church, the gates of hell will not prevail. That is what God says about the church. What do you say about the church? One of our membership vows we take to join a church is this. Do you promise to support the church and its work to the best of your ability? 
and how we choose to live that out shows our answer to this question. What do you say about the church? Well, it says your commitment to the church says everything about it. It's a, a vow that comes after the vows of commitment that we know that we're a sinner who needs Jesus. That our faith and trust is placed in Jesus alone as he's offering the Gospels. That our faith and trust is in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be the Word of God. And then we made this commitment to Christ, seeing our commitment to the church. Do you promise to support the church in its work to the best of your ability? We all have commitments in our lives. We have commitments to work, to family, uh, to our children, to their lives. And we're good about being committed to those. We get up and we go to work. Monday through Friday, we get to be there, we're there. We're good about making time for our family. We make sure all of our children's, our grandchildren's games. But here is the question for us. What is our commitment to the church? This is what God has said about the church. What do you say about the church? What is your confession about the church, about the way you live? Are you supporting the church and its work to the best of your ability? The thing we know is this. We, we need the church. We need the body. We need the fellowship. We need the worship. We need the prayers. We need the Bible studies. We need everything this church offers. We need this church. Are we committed to the church? We'll end with this story. I've shared this story before. It works well for this. The story of a member of a church who was going regularly and something happened and they stopped going. After a few weeks, the pastor goes to visit this man who stopped going to church. It's a chilly evening. pastor goes and finds the man home alone. He's sitting before a blazing fire. The man's pretty sure he knows why the pastor's there. He welcomes the man, leads him to a, one of the big chairs near the fire, and they sit down. The pastor doesn't say a word. Sits there for a few moments, and he's looking at the fireplace. He's contemplating the, the play of the flames around the burning logs. After a few moments, the, the, the pastor reaches over, takes the fire tongs, and he takes them, reaches into the fire, and picks up a brightly burning ember. He places it to one side of the hearth, and where it sits all by himself. And he never says a word. He sits back in his chair, silence. And the man sitting there is fascinated by this, wondering what's going on. And they both watch this lone ember flames diminish. There's a momentary glow, and then the fire was no more. It, it, it's cold. It's, it's dead. After a few moments, the pastor took the fire tongs again, picked up that cold, dead ember, and placed it back in the middle of the fire. Immediately, that ember began to glow with the light and warmth of the burning fire around it. The pastor stood to leave. The man stood up and shook his hand and said, Thank you. Thank you for your visit. Thank you for your fiery sermon. I will be back in church next Sunday. We know what God says about the church. What do you say about the church? You say it by the choice you make every Sunday. You say it by what you, how you invest yourself in the ministries of this church. We made the choice of whether or not to keep ourselves in the church and her work, confession and stance. Or we made the choice to remove ourselves as much as we can. That's what God says about the church. What is it you say by your life and commitment to the church? Let's pray together.